So we talked a little bit about family design and how God's designed the family, and we're going to talk a little bit about discipline and how discipline in the family is, is discipleship. Discipline is discipleship. So let me pray as we, uh, yeah, as we look to this particular topic. Lord, would you help us as we consider these things and as we look at a variety of passages and things that you say in your word? Lord, would you encourage us in the endeavor of parenting, particularly? Would you convict us rightly where we need to be convicted? Lord, might we conform our hearts, our minds, and form the methods of our parenting to your word. I ask this in your name. Amen. All right, so I want to first talk a little bit about what the goal of parenting is. And as we get started, I want you to take a minute, turn with, to maybe turn to your spouse for just a minute or two, and um, I want you to talk about this question. What do you want your kids to be when they grow up? We often ask kids, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, you know, they say, oh, I want to be this or I want to be that, and then, you know, next month it's something different or, or whatever. But do we as parents ever ask ourselves, what do I, as mom and dad, what do we want our kids to be when they grow up? So I want you just to talk ab- about that with your spouse for just a second. Um, I'll give you about a minute and just go like, well, what would that, what that, what would that even be? Okay. So I'll give you a minute to do that. All right. So what do, what do we want our kids to be when they grow up? Maybe you've thought about that before. Maybe you haven't thought about that before, but I think some things, some common things that I've heard parents say, or I've, um, you know, picked up on, you know, things like, Hey, you know, when my kids leave the house, I'd love for them to still go to church. I'd love for them to graduate with a diploma, right? Like, please graduate high school. I'd love for them, you know, man, it'd be a real success if they leave our house with no criminal record, no addictions, and no children, you know? As a youth pastor, that seems to be the goal of a lot of the parents of kids in my youth group. Gosh, if just, just no criminal record, no addictions, and no children, please. That they uh, find something that makes them happy, that they love. How about this? My goal for my kids is that they like me, they trust me, that as an adult they want to actually still spend time with me. None of these things necessarily are bad. But the question I want you to ask yourself today is, is it our job to set our kids up for the good life or to train them for a godly life? Which is our job? Is it your job, parents, to set your kids up for the good life or to train them up for a godly life? God's stated goal for you is this. It's in Malachi 2.15. 
Malachi 2.15 says this, Did he not make them one, that is, a husband and wife, with the portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So when God designed marriage, and when by his Spirit, it says, he brings husband and wife together, that one God, what is he seeking from that marriage? From the very beginning. What was his creation purpose? Malachi says godly offspring. Godly offspring. So what's the problem with the kind of the sort of common goals that we have? You know, well, I hope my kids grow up and have a, a good job and make a good paycheck and they don't do anything illegal and they're good citizens and, and um, I hope they're happy and, and you know, they find something that, to do that they're passionate about and all these things that, you know, maybe aren't bad in and of themselves. But what's the problem with it? They aren't the ultimate goal. It's like, a, it's like a football team that uh, sets a goal to have 500 yards of offense in a game and cares that they get 500 yards of offense but doesn't care that they won the game. Yeah, but you, but you lost, right? It isn't the famous saying, you play to win the game. What's winning the game? Parents. What's winning the game for us? So we may, have some, some, we may achieve some success in some of these other goals, and yet we can still not be seeking godly offspring. We can um, seek uh, these other common goals. They can be either seeking um, what we might call behaviorism, a sort of legalism, just do what you should do, and that's good enough. Or it may be um, some sort of kind of passive, like, uh, attempt to just kind of, hey, I want to have my kids to have freedom to be who they want to be or whatever, which tends to breed lawlessness and license. None of these actually promote repentance and faith in the gospel, and none of them result in God-worshipping, a God-worshipping and devoted Life. So what's the father's goal for his children? I want to I start here. What is our heavenly father's goal for his children? So what I want you to do is this. I want you to open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, and I want you to read verses 1 through 11, and maybe, maybe uh, just uh, scoot in with uh, another couple next to you or behind you or whatever, and just read it together. Um, but just gather in a couple little small groups here, and I want you to read Hebrews 12, 1 through 11, and then I want you to talk a little bit about what is the, fa- what is the heavenly's fa- Heavenly Father's goal for His children? I can't talk. What is our Heavenly Father's goal for His children? Okay, do that. Read Hebrews 12, 1 through 11, and then answer that question. All right, so, so some of the things it says that we would lay aside every weight and sin, and we'd run the race that He's put before us with endurance, right? And, and some of the ways that we do that, verse 2, looking to Christ, verse 3, considering Christ, and the ultimate goal of that we see in verses like verse 10, that we may share in His holiness, verse 11, that it would yield a, pus, a, p- a p- peaceful Peaceful, peaceful fruit of righteousness. I was merging some words together. That was 
awkward, um, to say the least. Uh, nevertheless, that we would be holy. That we would be holy like Christ is holy. Romans 8, 28 through 29 makes it really explicit. He says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Our Heavenly Father gave His only begotten Son in order that He may adopt us as His sons and daughters and conform us, transform us to the image of that one true Son. He wants more kids that look like Jesus. That's what He wants. In fact, that's been His purpose from the beginning, Malachi 2.15 tells us. Godly offspring is what God wanted from the very start, all the way back in the garden. When we think of what uh, was commanded there, we oftentimes we think, oh, well, don't eat the tree. That's what God commanded uh, uh, Adam, right? Don't eat the tree. But actually, Adam's primary command was not about eating or not, or not eating the tree. Adam's primary command was to take dominion and work and keep the garden. As Coleman said earlier, the command was not from something, the command was primarily to something, right? And that tells us something about how we ought to parent. That we are actually trying to uh, raise up kids to something, not just keep them from some things. That tree restriction was not meant to imprison Adam and Eve. It was actually meant to free them, to free the Son of God to be and do what God designed Him to be and do. So the only way for our kids to live a good life is for them to live a godly life. I want you to think about this for a second. I'm going to repeat it. The only way for your kids to live the good life is for them to live a godly life. Period. Period. End of statement. Full stop, we could go home, right? Okay, well, we got some applications on that, so we should probably keep talking. But we've got to get that through our minds because the world is telling us something totally different. The world wants to tell us that things like godliness actually keep you from good things. God's saying, no, it actually gives you the good. It frees you to the good things. Sin causes us to think differently. The world causes us to think differently. Because of sin, that godly life is only possible through Christ. You cannot live a godly life outside of faith in Christ. Sometimes we think of, about godly, we think, well, that just means like moral, like just do good things. But that's not how the Bible uh, phrases that. That godly life is not just about doing moral things. It's about actually devoting ourselves positively to the Lord. It's about being freed to do the good and the right and the beautiful in the world, right? Parents, you aren't merely trying to produce kids that don't do bad stuff. That's legalism. And you're not 
trying to, uh, you know, raise up kids that, are, that feel free to do whatever they, they want, whatever their heart desires. No, that's license. That's lawlessness. But we're actually trying to train our kids to have liberty, real freedom to pursue what is right and good. Sin complicates that, though. Sin complicates that. Just like it complicates it in, in our lives, and we have a Heavenly Father who is seeking to discipline us, seeking to train us uh, to be conformed to the image of His Son so that we can obtain those things, the things that are good. And we ought to model our parenting after Him. So how does the Heavenly Father do that? There's no better parent than Him. How does our Heavenly Father achieve this goal? Should we not take our cue from what He does? So consider Hebrews 12 again. Think, let's think about that passage. What does God use? Well, He uses discipline, right? What that passage makes really clear. Discipline becomes incredibly important. Some other passages, Revelation 3, 9, uh, 3.19 says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Proverbs 3.11-12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be wary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. If you love and delight your children, then you will apply yourself to discipline them. The Bible puts these things together. The love of a father for their children and the commitment that that father has to discipline. Okay? No one naturally becomes like Christ, right? You don't just, your kids aren't born and they just grow up being like Christ. You know that, parents, right? You've experienced that firsthand. So, it has to start with faith in Christ. He is, as our passage in Hebrews 12 says, the founder and perfecter of our faith, meaning it starts there and it continues through faith in Christ all the way to the end. It's not, he's not just our founder, He's also the perfecter, meaning the gospel isn't just something that, that you know, gets us into faith and then we just kind of do it on our own, but actually we're dependent on faith in Christ all the way through. And so parents, if we want that for our kids, then the way in which we parent has to be dependent on faith in Christ, has to be dependent on God all the way through. But God's commanded us to do some, some different things and we're going to look at that. It also says that Christ endured the cross in order, that, in order to make a way for us to be adopted into God's family. Think about that for a second. When, when a man and I adopted Silas, it cost like a fair bit of money. There was a lot of things to do to make that happen. But when God adopted you into his family, it cost him his son. It cost him the son he already had, right? So our first and our highest goal in all of this has to be to evangelize our children. This is really where I wanted to want to start is, you know, when you come in, you go, oh, we're going to talk about discipline, you know, and what the Bible says about discipline. You Maybe you came in here thinking, oh, okay, I could use a couple of good tips, you know, my kids are kind of, you know, I don't know what to do about it when this, or I don't know what to do about that. Uh, but, but what I want you to, to realize is that if you are not sharing the gospel with your children, if your children do not come to faith in Christ, what's the point? 
It's like in 1 Timothy where it says that, that physical training is of some benefit, but godliness is of uh, value for this life and the next, right? Disciplining your kids to act, behave appropriately is of some benefit, but godliness, that is the ultimate goal because it is a benefit for this life and for the next life for them. Hebrews 12, 11, it, you know, it, it says, for the, moment, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who are trained by it. It isn't, listen, you know, parents, that discipline isn't pleasant. It's not pleasant for the person being disciplined, and it's not pleasant for the person who has to do the disciplining, is it? We're going to get in our heads that oftentimes, disciplining our kids the way we ought is going to feel like punishment for us. It is. I want you to, like, just let that sit for a second. If you are disciplining your kids appropriately, it is oftentimes going to feel like punishment for you. You don't get to do the thing you want to do right now because you need to apply yourself to, to disciplining your child. It takes selflessness. And that's why that idea of love and discipline are tied together in Scripture, because it takes selflessness and sacrifice to discipline our kids. My favorite illustration of this is the, my, my, co- my coffee shop illustration is what I, what I always go to. The, the mom who, who goes to Third Space, and I, I only say this because I've seen it like a zillion times sitting in Third Space. The mom who goes to Third Space, and I know what she's feeling when she comes in here because I've seen my wife like, oh, I get to get my you know, pumpkin spice, and it's going to be so wonderful, and I'm going to sit here in this coffee shop in the ambiance, and maybe I'll take an Instagram or two, and I'm going to sip on this coffee and whatever. But, but mom has a nine-month-old baby, or mom has a three-year-old. That's the worst, let's be honest. They say terrible twos. It's not two. It's three. It's three. And if, and if you have my daughter, that moved into four as well. But that's another topic. But anyway, all of a sudden, and, and mom's thinking, it's okay, because they got that little play area, you know? And so I'm sure it's going to be fine. But as soon as, the, the, like, as soon as they, the kid gets in there, they're like knocking over the kitchen set or there's another kid and they're screaming or they're like taking off and they're running down that, the whole middle of the, the coffee shop. And, and I can just see it on mom's face. I just, I just want to sit here and enjoy my coffee for a second. Like, can I just have a breath? And I get that. I get that desire. And my response is, no, you can't. No, you can't. You had children. And it's, and it's good, but it's not easy. And th- there may be a day in which you can sit there and you can sip your coffee, but that day is not today. Today is a day for work. And it will pay off. It will pay off because one day, if you apply yourself now, one day you'll sit in that coffee shop with your coffee and your child will be 14 instead of four and they'll be sitting there having a conversation with you about Christ and you'll be drinking your coffee and they'll be drinking their coffee, I guess. And it'll be wonderful. But that day is not today. But how, what, how you spend today has an effect 
for then. No discipline is, is, is pleasant at the time. It's painful. Later, later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. But it's later that that happens. Okay, two types of discipline that I want to talk about this morning. Um, and I'm already I'm running out of time already. Um, two types of discipline, formative and corrective. Uh, so we, we use the term discipline to talk about someone who positively trains for a thing, right? The, the, the athlete who d is disciplined in preparing for the game or the student who's disciplined in their study before the test. So formative, it's beforehand, it's proactive. D and then we have discipline in terms of correction. The athlete is out there in the game and the coach has to say, no, I don't want you to do it that way. Remember, I told you to do it this way instead. And so there's correction that's needed. And we have to think about both of these things. We have to think about both of these things. But before, before we get into talking about formative and corrective discipline, particularly in some of the principles that I think are important and, and, and maybe some of the practices and, and things, and, uh, I want to give you just real quick seven ways to promote success in this, okay? I got so many points, I should have made a slide. If you want the notes, I'll give them later. Um, but I want to give you just seven quick, quick things that are going to promote success that, that um, kind of undergird all of discipline, Okay. These are sort of like foundational pieces that if you don't have these, if you're not doing these, it's going to make any kind of discipline weak. It's going to, it's going to weaken the foundation for any kind of discipline. Okay. We can certainly talk more about these, but this is, this, today is just like a, it's like a 5,000, 10,000, 30,000 foot overview. Okay. First, be an example. You got to make it observable. What you live out before your kids is the most formative thing for your kids. Coleman was saying, we pick up things, you know, hey, some of this will be hard because we pick up things from our world. Guess what? That's also true of your kids. They pick up things and guess who's there around, who, who they're around most? You. You're the, you're the biggest example. I've talked with parents with, of teenagers and say, oh, well, my kid doesn't really look to me. They, you know, my kid's a teenager now, so they look to this and this and this and their friends and, and whatever. And it's like, no, no, they look to you. You, most of you guys have kids that are younger. Some of you guys are having kids that are getting older like my kids are. When your kids are teenagers, they are still looking to you first, period, period, okay? I cannot emphasize that enough. It's a lie when people say, no, they're, 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 other people are bigger examples. No, parents, it's God's design. It's God's design. You are the primary model for your children, Robert E. Lee, I love what he said here when he would talk to fathers. He would say, fathers, you should never expect to control your kids if you can't control yourself. All good discipline starts with self-discipline. If you're unwilling to put the time in for formative dis dis discipline, or if, you, uh, uh, or if you don't expect yourself to follow through, if you're the mom at the coffee shop and you tell your kids when you go in, hey, you better behave or else we're going to leave, and then when they don't behave, you don't leave, that's, that's, you're not disciplining yourself. And so why would you expect your kids to think, oh, I need to actually listen to mom when mom doesn't listen to herself? Right? Like, just think about that for a second. You're actually training your kids to do the opposite of what you want them to do. because you're not modeling it. Okay, be an example. Strengthen your marriage. 
Uh, the way I think about this is it makes it stable. If kids don't believe, if kids don't have a, a, that feeling, if you will, of stability, then boundaries start to fall. You parents, your marriage is meant to create stability, structure for your kids on top of which they can actually learn how to behave. Your marriage, the most important relationship for your kids is your relationship with your spouse. Most, I'll say most important earthly relationship, right? Jesus first, okay? Earthly relationship, the most important relationship for your kids is not your relationship with your kids. It's not. It's your relationship with your spouse. It's far more valuable to your kids. You think, oh, that's not true, Cody, because like, um, but I'm going to like really have a relationship with my daughter, a relationship with my son, and I got to put that. No. If you want to put your kid uh, a higher priority, then put your spouse above them. That's what they need. That's how God's designed it. Third thing, keep your authority. (laughs) I'll say it this way. This is what makes it sensible. If you, don't have, if you don't keep your authority, if you've not kept up your authority, then why should they listen to you? What you've actually trained them to is listening to you doesn't matter. Honoring you doesn't matter. Obeying you doesn't matter. Unless you keep your authority, you're actually training them for something else. Your own... I'll say it this way. This is where I see it. I, this is where I think this happens most um, with parents. Uh, parents, you may need a friend, but don't put that on your kids. Don't put that on your kids. That is so selfish. That's incredibly selfish. I, re- I really need a friend, so my kid needs to be my friend. Lots of people can be your kids' friends but only a few people can be their parents, right? That's what they need from you. To be a father, to be a mother, not to be a friend. That doesn't mean you don't get along with your kids. That doesn't mean you like enjoy, don't, can't enjoy them. Uh, certainly, I want to grow up and, and my kids to enjoy being around me. I hope my kids uh, live near me. I hope we spend time together, but I will never be their friend. I will always be their father, because that's how God designed it. Next thing, gain their affection. Make it desirable. God, God isn't over here going like, hey, you need to obey me, and, and, and then just that, that's it. But he actually loves us. He makes sure that, uh, that he is love, loving to us and lovable right? He, he gains our affection, and that produces love and respect for Him in us. And this isn't in conflict with our authority. Both, both can be held at the same time, but it does take time and effort. It takes listening to your kids. It takes caring for them. It takes paying attention to the little things that your kids enjoy and, and doing those things for them just because you love them. It takes, you know, coming home from work, dads, and, and um, making sure mom's okay, and then going and spending time with your kids. Listen, parents, you come home from work, work is not done. 
It just shifts. The work you're doing shifts. Okay? It's not like, oh, I'm, I'm off of work, so now I can just do whatever I want. No, you're a parent. Okay. And, and I'll say this also. Dads, dads, when you come home from work, um, you know, it's not, it's not uh, you don't do this because mom needs a break. Moms, dad, dad doesn't do this because you need a break. You've worked all day with your kids, I get it, but they've worked all day at their job as well. It's not because you need a break. They come home and you both are still working. I think that that is a, um, there's kind of this lie that happens. Well, you know, I've had to be with the kids all day. And so, you know, you haven't, you've been, you know, doing something else as if, as if they've been like on vacation all day, like playing golf. I mean, if, I guess if, if dad's job is playing golf, then maybe this is, we could talk about that. This is an exception, but, but like they've been working too. Okay. So let's not let's let's get that let's get that right there. Um, you both you're both still on the job. Let's work together, and let's let's parent. Okay. Prioritize your time. This makes it possible. Discipline takes time and energy. Listen, if you can't eat dinner together as a family most nights, then you probably need to reorganize your family's life. If most nights of the week you can't sit down and have dinner together as a family, then something needs to be reorganized. That's, I'll, just, I'll let the Holy Spirit convict as, as He wants there. Uh, sometimes this misprioritization can sound very selfless and holy. You know, we're just trying to give our kids all these opportunities and experiences, but you're actually unwittingly training your kid to think things revolve around them, and they don't. The kid's life revolves around what's happening in the family, not the other way around. The kids are submitted to the family and what's happening in the family. The family doesn't follow the kid around, okay? And that's something else that our culture just totally reverses. The earlier you start with this, the better. The, the longer that this has gone um, the longer that your, your, your family life has been misprioritized, the harder it is going to make that shift and, and, and because you're, not, you're, not, you're working from a deficit. You're working from a deficit. You have a debt now. And so parents who have really young kids, like, apply these things now. Uh, if you don't have kids, like, just do it now. Like, one of the, I, I, something that I, we, man, man and I stumbled into that by God's grace is when we were, it was just us and we had no kids, we sat down and had dinner together at the dinner table every night. We didn't sit at the couch watching TV while we ate dinner. We turned the TV off, we sat down at the table, and we had our tater tot casserole because that's all we could afford, right? And then I'd make a peanut butter sandwich afterwards and my, mom, my wife would be like offended that I, that I, you know, ate peanut butter jelly sandwich after I ate the tater tot casserole that she made, you know. It's it it no offense. It's just I like peanut butter jelly sandwiches. What are we going to do? Um, so prioritize time. Hey, another, uh, uh, here's my sixth thing. I'm never going to get through all this. Uh, guard their flank. 
guard their flank. You know, in, in military terms, you uh, can only attack or defend what's in front of you, right? And so if, if, a, if, if the army is going out and they're opposing another army, uh, one of the units would be uh, on the flank. They would guard the side and make sure that they, the army is not susceptible to attack from the side because if I have people attacking me from here and then a whole other group of people come from here, we're defenseless. We'll just be slaughtered. And, so, and sometimes, parents, what we're doing is we're allowing our kids to be flanked by things that we actually know exist, but they don't. Right? Like if you're giving your kid unfettered access to the internet by way of a phone in their pocket, you are not guarding their flank. You know what that is. They don't yet fully understand that. Guard their flank. If you're giving your kid unlimited or uncurated screen time, you're not guarding their flank. You're asking for problems, right? And we can debate about where those battle lines should be drawn, what, what that should or shouldn't be. But, but, I want, but what I want you to get is that, that there is something there that we need to do as parents. We're called to do, to protect, to protect our kids. The last thing I'll say here is pray for them. Pray for them. Pray regularly. Pray with your spouse. Pray with them. When you pray for them, listen, uh, uh, something that, that I, I don't think I realized early enough, I wish I had realized earlier, when you pray with your kids, say at night, maybe, maybe many of you fathers go in and you pray with your kids and you, uh, you know, thank you for this day, whatever. Here's what I want you to start doing. Pray specifically for them. Pray specifically the things that you are praying for them, over them, for them to hear. Don't just say, hey, you know, pray for Josie that, you know, she would love you. You know, not, not, not just generic things. I mean, those are fine, but, but pray specifically for the things you know they're struggling with that you want God to help them with. Pray specifically for the temptations you know that they particularly fall into that you want God to guard them from. Pray specifically for the ways in which you want God, you're praying for God to sanctify them. Pray that so they can hear it. Pray that over them when you pray with them. Does that make sense? That's, that's, that's powerful, both in the praying, but also in discipling your kids, modeling to them, for them hearing. These are the things that, that are on my father or my mother's heart so heavy for me that they would get on their knees and pray to God for them. Okay? Okay. Formative discipline. What's the purpose of formative discipline? Uh, Proverbs 22.6 gives us, you know, a window into this. It says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Formative discipline proactively guides our kids towards what is right and good. It proactively uh, guides our kids towards what is right and and good. It's the formation of godly knowledge and virtues in our kids' lives, and it, that starts, as I said, with faith in Christ, and then goes out from that. So, formative rather than corrective discipline needs to be our discipline bread and butter, if you will. And my guess is that when you think about discipline, the thing that comes into your head most often, if you're anything like me, is corrective discipline. But in reality, the discipline that we see the most in Scripture, the discipline that God does the most with His children, isn't corrective, it's formative. 
God so was so thought formative discipline was so important, right? That part of him sending his son to live in the earth is to, to for, for us to actually see the exact image and imprint of God's character in the flesh. Formative discipline for God's children we see is in prayer and reading God's word, meeting together and ordinances and singing to one another, on and on and on. All of these things are formative discipline. Until you stop to think about that, you don't realize just how much God has wired in formative discipline for his children. So why, why don't we spend more time on this? Well, maybe we're ignorant of it, but I think probably most likely, oftentimes we're just, we just don't prioritize it. We're just too lazy. But the reality is that actually ends up harder for parents in the end. I'll tell you a quick story. Um, when I was a kid, my, uh, my parents would have us do chores, right? And, um, well, I'll, I'll share it from the way that I remember it. My parents might tell a different version of this, so let's just be, fair, for fairness sake, okay? So, from, like, when I was in third grade, uh, we would have, we'd each have a chore. So, either, either we would do um, all of the dishes for our other family, or all the vacuuming in the house, or all of the laundry. And when I mean all the laundry, I don't mean my laundry. I mean my dad's laundry, my mom's laundry, my sister's laundry, my brother's laundry, all the laundry. So, from third grade... That's what, that was, would be one of my chores and would rotate every week. And then at a certain point, we realized I would rather do laundry. My sister would rather do dishes. My brother would rather do vacuuming. And that just became the steady state deal. So I did all of my family's laundry all the time from about fifth grade and like all the way through. All of it, okay? So just, I'm just telling you what your kids are capable of. Now, now what, I, what I want you to understand is... Um, what, the point of this is more the methodology. So, so when we learned to do the dishes, my dad would say, do the dishes and clean the kitchen. Okay. I'd go in there, do the dishes, you know. And then my dad would come in half an hour later, and he'd say, Cody, get in here. This counter's not cleaned off. You didn't even wipe it off. You know, and why is this not this like And why is that that way? And I'm like, oh, you know, and I, okay. And that's how I learned how to do the dishes. It was 10% formative, and it was 90% corrective, okay? And that corrective kind of sucked, right? Because I'm getting yelled at. I'm getting, like, you know, threatened spankings or whatever because I didn't do something that I didn't actually know what he wanted, right? And so, I, you know, taking that in, uh, you know, as we taught our kids to do the dishes, um, you know, it's like, okay, Remember, Cody? Remember what that... All right. Formative, formative, formative. And, and it takes time. It takes time. You got to sit there with your kids. You got to watch them take dirty dishes out of the dishwasher and then put them in the thing and go, okay, hold on. Look, look at this. Like, let's actually look at the dish, you know, not just try to get them from the dishwasher to the cabinet as quickly as possible, right? Okay, you know, maybe that's not the best way to put the dishes in the dishwasher, you know, that's going to fill up with water, and that's not going to work. You know, it takes time. But uh, I hope that at least in some ways I did that better than uh, the other way. We both learned how to do the dishes. But one has more effort on the front end, 
and is more pleasant for our kids and creates a, a greater um, uh, affection and a, a better authority over, over them. And the other is more effort on the back end and is more painful, really. Okay, so that's why formative discipline is so important. So some key principles for formative discipline that I want to give you. Um, first, make it plain and tangible. Make it plain and tangible, as plain and tangible as possible. The plainest truths taught in the plainest ways with the clearest applications. So, uh, God is good and great, and His creation is a gift. It's a plain truth. You want, that's a category that you want to make sure you convey to your kids, uh, that your kids are sinful and they're unable without God to live rightly. That their only hope is faith in Christ and what He has done. That they ought to live with devotion to God. You know, that there's a way that Christians ought to live in integrity and benevolence and humility, diligence, self-control. The plainest truths in the plainest ways with the plainest application. And as our kids get older, then it can become slightly more and more complex. But, but, but even still, for their age level, we want to we make that as plain as possible. That takes work. Uh, plain and tangible, serious and tender. Serious and tender. Serious doesn't necessarily mean sad or harsh or intimidating or boring, okay? We don't need to be unnecessarily severe. We don't need to take away good pleasure when it's actually good and right, right? We don't need to take away, we don't need to, you know, make it suffering because we want to be serious about things. But it also needs to be tender. Like I said, when you pray with them at night, don't pray for trivial things. Pray for, pray for the serious and tender things. Help them to see this is, prayers aren't trite. It's not a trite activity. You're talking to the sovereign, holy God in pleading for someone whom you love with your own life. Pray for them with them like that. First Thessalonians 2 5 and 8 um, is interesting because Paul is talking about the way in which he discipled uh, the Christians there in Thessalonica. And, and he uses this analogy. He says um, in verse 5, for we, we never came with words of flattery. It was never flattery. As you know, nor with pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have demanded things as apostles of Christ, but, but, but we were gentle among you like nursing mothers taking care of their own children. And then down in verse 11, he continues, he says, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So if Paul is using this analogy of a father and mother in the way that he discipled these, these fellow believers, uh, these new Christians in Thessalonica, and he says, look, like a nursing mother, I cared for you. And like a father, I exhorted you and I encouraged you and I charged you to walk in a manner worthy. Then how much more when we're discipling our own children? 
should we ought to do it in that way? Serious but tender, patient and consistent. The last principle that I'm going to say is patient, patient and consistent. Listen, the harvest doesn't come in a day, right? We saw that in Hebrews 12, 11. Your children didn't learn to eat and walk in a day. Your children didn't learn to eat and walk in a day. I'll just remind you of that. You remember what that was like, you know, and maybe some of you guys are still doing that right now, and you're trying to teach your kid how to, to get, grab the spoon and get the food and put it in their mouth, and it's getting all over them, right? Why do we expect it not to be like that spiritually as well in, in, in these things? You know, your kid's going to go, okay, dad, dad taught me, you know, that I should do this and be godly in this way, and they're going to, like, get it all over themselves when they try to do it. You know, my daughter, you know, one of the things she likes to do when she sees something that's off, you know, that, that like, hey, she's heard us say something and she sees it off somewhere else and she'll just like point it out. She'll be like, wait, wait a second. Hold on. And it's like, oh, so you get this, she's got the applesauce all over everyone here. You know, you're right, but let me give, let me, let me do a little more training on this. Okay. Not going to learn in a day. So set up regular rhythms. Make it normal. Repetition is going to be needed. Some practices for formative discipline. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these because we've talked about them before. And I think these resources that we have here, especially those three little books I got, particularly for this, corporate worship. Prepare, model how to participate in corporate worship, follow up on corporate worship. Um, And that, that little book on the family at church is going to be really helpful in that regard. Family worship and catechism. Huge, hugely helpful in terms of formative worship. Set up regular rhythms, make them consistent, and just keep chipping away. Keep working at it. Um, Everyday conversations, right? Deuteronomy 6 talks about, hey, when you're, as you're on the way, when you get up, when you lie down, when you go along the way, talk about these things. And a lot of times I hear parents say, oh, I, you know, I just hope my, when my kid is a teenager that I'm able to have a conversation with them. Listen, that is made possible by what you're doing right now when your kids are young. Most parents assume it's just kind of impossible. It's just, you know, that's just how teenagers are. They don't talk to their parents. No. Let me break that lie as well. I've seen it. But it takes work. It takes work when your kids are two and three and six and eight that you are taking the effort to continually talk with them, that you are making it normal to have those conversations, that you are pulling them aside and you're having, you're initiating those conversations. Why would your kids, when they're 14 and they're struggling with something, want to initiate a conversation about something spiritual or something that's troubling them if you've not been able to get over the awkwardness when they're six to have those conversations with them, fathers. Like, it's going to be harder for them, right, at 14 than me at 40 to do that. All right. Corrective discipline. Corrective discipline is, is uh, my, my wife told me I should have more interaction times, but I'm out of time, so we're not having so many interactive times. I'm sorry. Um, Corrective discipline reactively adjusts our kids to what is right and good. So corrective discipline is that, like, okay, let's, let's reorient ourselves to what is right and good. What are some principles 
for corrective discipline. First, I'm going to give you three. Clear, consistent, and comparable. There's probably a lot of things we could say, but I think if, I think if we think about these three principles, I think we're gonna, it's going to take us a long, it's going to be 80% of the way there. Clear, consistent, comparable. I've got to make it clear. How many times have we said, well, they should know better, right? Well, should they? I mean, they, they should if, if we're making it clear. Certainly, you know, there's some things they should know better, but listen, our Heavenly Father could say the same thing about us how many times? How many times could God say, Cody, you should know better? (laughs) That actually is true. I should know better. And yet God is patient with us, and he makes it clear over and over again in his word. We need to be clear about expectations beforehand. We need to be clear about what the consequences are if those expectations aren't met. Listen, where the gospel's at work, um, less often becomes more. God summed up the law as love God and love others, right? And where the gospel's at work, if we just think in those terms, when we have a basic understanding of the character of God, when we've been modeling to our kids godly behavior, less becomes more because they go, okay, I, kind of, I already understand I'm picking up the categories, especially as they get older. But the younger they are, the more we actually have to, to outline those things. But even, even then, God summed it up in what? Ten words in the Ten Commandments, right? So let's make it clear, consistent. Consistent is sort of the glue, I think, that holds clear and comparable together. This, this is... Um, I think one of the most common mistakes that parents make. I think if, if one of these three things is violated the most, it's probably consistent. So we make this particular rule, we make this particular boundary super clear, we make the consequences really clear, and then when the child breaks that rule, the parent doesn't want to deal with the inconvenience of being consistent with it, right? Of actually holding to the consequences we said. And so what do we do? We do one of a couple of things. We either warn them, which is fine. I mean, warning is fine. But we warn them over and over and over and over again, and they realize, oh, they're just going to keep warning me. I can do whatever I want. As long as I can put up with them warning me again, then I'll just keep doing the thing that I'm doing. That's what we're training our kids for. Or on the other side, what ends up happening is we continue to let them kind of do these things because it's not really convenient for us until it becomes overwhelmingly frustrating and annoying, right? And, th- and then what do we do? Like anyone want to just be like honest for a second? Then what happens? Kaboom, right? Then it's, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? You know, we're just freaking out because we're so annoyed, but in reality, it's our fault as much as it's their fault, because we refused to be consistent earlier. When we said we were going to, we didn't actually follow through on that. And so we go from zero to 10 on the discipline scale in a a minute, but it hasn't really been a minute because we've allowed it to continue on. So here's here's the, the thing I want you to think about. Consistency over intensity. 
I mean, there's, there's moments when intensity needs to happen, right? Your kid runs out in, into the street. You know, your three-year-old runs out in the street, and you've got to be intense. But consistency is so much more important. We've got to be clear over and over again. All right, comparable. This is simple enough, right? Make, let the, the consequence, let the way that you handle the correction match the thing that happened. And, and I want you to understand that when we're talking about uh, corrective discipline, it's not, it's not punitive discipline. It's not merely just, I need to punish, they need to be punished. Our heart in this is never, I just need to punish them because they frustrated me or because they disobeyed me. It's, it's I want to correct them. Because remember, it's about what we're wanting them to become, okay? Not about just don't annoy me in this moment. All right, so what are some of the pitfalls real quick? We'll take just a couple more minutes here, and I'll, I'll share a couple pitfalls, and I'll wrap it up. The first pitfall is good cop, bad cop. Good cop, bad cop. The parents agree on, um, they have an agreed upon boundary. The kid breaks that boundary. One parent goes, okay. That's what we said, and that parent uh, follows through on the punishment that was described or, or, or communicated clearly, and then right after that punishment happens, the other parent swoops in to comfort the child. Oh, I'm so sorry you got punished. Here. As if the parent who did the disciplining was the one that sinned, not the kid. Or one parent is always the only one who consistently follows through on the discipline and the other parent doesn't. What we do is we actually, we actually undercut four of the seven things that I said promote success earlier when we do that. We, we simultaneously create a situation where our child is rewarded for manipulation and triangulation of the parents, as well as destabilizing our own marriages. It's just that good cop, bad cop thing has to become repulsive to you in your marriage. You have to be on the same page as parents. No good cop, bad cop. Okay. The second pitfall is cutting, is what I'm calling cutting, not correcting. Cutting, not correcting. Too often parents are tempted to respond to their kids' misbehavior with cut downs rather than correction. You see this all the time. I hear it just out in public. How many times parent, I'll, I'll see a kid acting up and the parent will say something that's just, it's just an insult to their kids. They're not actually trying to correct their child. They're just cutting them down like a middle school student would, Right? They're actually lowering their, lowering their maturity down to the maturity of their children instead of elevating their children's maturity up to where you, they want them to be. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear it. And again, in Ephesians 6.4, we talked about this earlier, that kind of thing leads our kids to resenting us because of our hypocrisy and berating of them rather than seeing us loving them and wanting the best for them in our correction. It, it provokes them to, to anger. It exasperates them. And so we can't, we can't just cut. 
Now, now that's not to say that we aren't telling our kids when they're sinful, right? You still have to tell your kids, like, that was sin. And that may feel bad for them. That may actually produce shame and guilt in them, but the good kind of shame and guilt, the kind that actually would lead them to repentance, not the kind of shame that's just like, you're a, you're a why are you such a terrible jerk, six-year-old? That, that doesn't actually correct them. That, that may in the moment like make you feel better in some sense, but it doesn't actually help your kids. Okay, the last thing that, that I, the pitfall I want to talk about here is, is a refusal to spank. And I, I want to share about this in a couple of, different, couple of different principles. First, I want you to understand that spanking is biblical. Proverbs 22:15 says, "Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him." You know, people will try to twist this around to make it mean, you know, like, "Oh, well, it's not." No, no, this literally means corporal punishment. It literally means there's not any other way to really to take this. Spanking is biblical. Spanking is necessary. Proverbs 23, 13, and 14 says, Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. So when we're talking about spanking, we're talking about corporal punishment, we're talking about actual physical spanking, not spanking that is going to create like harm. It's not going to injure the child, but it is, does hurt. It is actual physical contact to discipline them. And it says, if you strike him with the rod, he will save his soul from Sheol. It's not just saying, hey, this is an option for you if you want. The Bible is saying parents need to use this discipline with their children. It's good and beneficial. It's necessary. And listen, some, some might object, I, you know, but I've read this this expert, and they have a, a doctorate degree in, in child psychology, and they say, and we got to ask ourselves, who do we trust? Do we trust the eternal word of the one who created humans, who created children, who created families, who created parents, who created all of it? Or experts whose opinion is one thing today and another thing tomorrow? So spanking is biblical, it's necessary. Spanking is loving. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him, Proverbs 13, 24. When my kids were small and they ran into the street, I spanked them. I spanked them because it was that grave of an issue and they needed to know, and I am sorry, a two-year-old is not going to get me saying, oh, sweetie, don't run into the street. They're not going to get it. They're, they're, they're two. But you know what they do get? They do un- 